Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. If you're currently a professional songwriter or if you're working to become one, this episode is required listening. Our guest is unlike any of our previous in that he's not a songwriter but works tirelessly on behalf of all songwriters. He's been the CEO and president of the National Music Publishers Association for the past 13 years where he implemented landmark legal successes for publisher and songwriter royalty rate agreements and continues to work on increasing the value of intellectual property. Named to Billboard's Power 100 multiple times, This overachiever serves on several boards, including the Songwriter Hall of Fame, and has previously served in senior positions within the U.S. government. This honorable guest certainly has a colorful background of proven success no matter where he is. So without further ado, here is, and the writer is, featuring David Israelite. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. This week, we have a special guest. He is the man who fights for all you songwriters. He has been the president of the NMPA, the National Music Publishers Association, for over 10 years. He's the one who leads our efforts in copyright reform and songwriter equality in the streaming era. In other words, he's not just metaphorically David against Goliath. He's literally David. And he's battling behemoth companies and lobbyists who don't want to pay for your music, for your intellectual property, and for your work. As a human, he's on the board of the Songwriter Hall of Fame and the Special Olympics in D.C. And the best friend of writers is poker enthusiast extraordinaire David Israelite. Thank you. It's quite an introduction. Yeah, it's my forte. Uh, so uh, before we get into copyrights, I want people to get to know you a little more as a human. So let's start with poker strategy. To what extent do you adjust your pre-flop approach based on the style of most active players at the table? I'm going to get in trouble. Uh, 
Significantly, I would say. Significantly. Um, poker is a, a hobby, but a serious hobby for me. I enjoy it very much. And I think a lot about the strategy of poker translates into other parts of your life. And so I find a lot of life lessons um, that I learn from playing poker. Um, who taught you how to play poker? My grandfather. My father's father was a poker player, and I have fond memories as a young kid of sitting around a kitchen table with my brother and cousins with pennies and nickels and learning the game of poker. So I, I, I attribute that to him. Would you, be, would you consider yourself a professional poker player? Oh, no. I'm, a, I'm an amateur, um, but I'd like to think that I can sit with professionals and sometimes hold my own. And, of course, the professionals love the idea of amateurs like me thinking that. So um, I'm, I'm definitely not a professional. Um, by the way, that line of questioning came from John Frankenheimer, my trusty attorney, <laughs> who thought you'd really appreciate that. So um, let's get into some fun stuff. Where are you from? I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. Okay. And came to Washington when I was in college uh, to do an internship in the United States Senate. And then came back uh, during my law school years and uh, came back a third time and ended up staying. So I've been in Washington now for a long time, but uh, consider myself still a Kansas Cityan. Did you ever write mm-hmm. or play music? I did uh, try. Um, but of course, the reason I'm doing what I do now is because I wasn't very good at it. I grew up playing guitar, was never a good guitar player, but had some bands in junior high and early high school years. And uh, we mostly played cover songs, of course, but uh, every now and then I would sit down and, and try to write my own things. And it gave me a real appreciation for the talent that you and other great songwriters have because I could never do it. When did you realize that your dream of being a rock star was not going to happen? Probably were you, in, were you in high school thinking uh, with your long hair? I mean, I'm pretty sure if you Google some pictures, you might be able to see some some long hair. It's like, were you in bands in high school thinking, "Man, I'm going to make it," or was it like that you knew going into it that this was a hobby? I'd say by ninth or tenth grade, it was pretty apparent that uh, I was not going to be a rock star and that I should focus on other pursuits for my life. Uh, right. Probably the same time I realized I wasn't going to become a professional baseball or basketball player. Right, right. There's that thing of realizing at some point that I'm not going to be a three-point specialist. You That's know, right. it's that thing because I can't jump, so you always looked at those players that could shoot from the outside and think, <laughs> I don't know, maybe as a 5'10 Jewish kid, I can like... <laughs> Learn how to hit one free throw and go in the NBA. Um, I didn't succeed at that. Um, okay, so you know what you're doing in DC is hard to explain to you know the the average even songwriter or professional songwriter. I think what's so shocking because we sell air for a living is how do you find value in intellectual property? Like why is a song worth something? What the history is, and I think it's probably best for you to give some sort of history from 1909, Irving Berlin, Tin Pan Alley. How is it that songwriters started getting paid? Sure, and I, I should tell you, I, I used to be a lawyer. I only practiced for a few years, and, and quickly decided that wasn't my right career path, but. It was during my time when I was working at the Justice Department, working for the Attorney General, and this was during the period when the theft of music was really the predominant issue in the music industry, is that people were stealing music, that a lot of artists and songwriters weren't making a a living anymore, and I asked the Attorney General 
if he would create a task force on intellectual property to really start to look at the issues of what the government could do to help people protect their intellectual property. But it was driven by music at the time. Who introduced you to that concept? I mean, how are you, being in D.C. and not being a songwriter, why did you find a, a sort of a personal affiliation to this? I think the inspiration came from from two things. Number one, um, one of my close personal friends was running the trade association known as the Recording Industry Association of America, the RIAA. And I was watching what he was dealing with in his job in trying to protect copyrights against theft. And secondly, I think it was my own personal love of music that, that made me pay attention to what was going on. And I felt like I was in a position to to potentially try to help um, from the position of the Justice Department. And so with the Attorney General's blessing, he created this task force. And we spent a couple of years looking at these issues. And that's really what got me into the whole space of copyright. I wasn't a copyright attorney. I had no background in it other than my very short music career. And so I started to learn quite a bit more about it. And it's a great question about the history because the story of how we got to where we are really is important. If you're a songwriter today, you probably look at the world that you live in and it makes not a lot of sense why things are the way they are. And the history of how we got here is instructive. And so this story of a modern songwriter's problems starts basically in 1909. And at that time, the United States Congress thought that music publishers had a monopoly on player piano roles that there was too much concentration of the industry in too few hands and that the government needed to do something about it. And so in 1909, Congress passed a law that said to music publishers and composers that you must license your copyright and we at the federal government will set the price. And they decided in 1909 that that price would be two cents. So if you wrote a song and it was put on a player piano roll, you would be paid two cents for every time one of those roles was sold. And most importantly, you didn't have any choice as to whether or not people got to use it. It was a compulsory license. It was taken from you whether you wanted it to be taken or not. And that is how the law treated songwriters' copyrights from 1909 until 1976. And that two-cent rate stayed the same. So someone who bought an album in 1975, that songwriter got the same two cents as that songwriter from 1909 that made a song that was in a player piano role. And finally, in 1976, Congress decided not that we should free the songwriters to go into a free market like other property owners are to sell their property, but rather we should adjust the price. And from 1976 until today, there have been a series of different steps taken about how the prices get set. And so if you were to tell the average person today that if they were to listen to interactive streaming on Apple or Spotify or Pandora or Amazon or Google, that the price that a songwriter gets is set by three judges who sit in Washington, D.C., and every five years they conduct a trial to determine the price, the average person would look at you like, that is crazy. And they're right, it is crazy. But it all comes from an analysis in 1909 about the market concentration of how much music publishers had in player piano roles. 
And this type of income for a songwriter, what we call a mechanical reproduction, it used to be just a sale of a vinyl album or a CD or a download even, but today is mostly the streaming services that, that allow you to choose what you want to play whenever you want. There's a similar story when it comes to the rights of a songwriter when their music is played publicly, a public performance right. That right, um, so for example, your music is played on the radio or played in a public venue like a bar or a restaurant or a hotel. That right has never been regulated by Congress. It's a free market right, and a songwriter should be in the position to decide how much they want to charge for someone to publicly perform their song, their copyright. But the story of the history then jumps to 1941, when at that time, there were two companies primarily that were engaged in the business of licensing songwriters' rights and collecting money for public performance. Those companies are ASCAP and BMI. And in 1941, Congress decided, I'm sorry, the Justice Department decided that there was too much market concentration in ASCAP and BMI, and there was a fledgling broadcast industry that was developing in the United States, and the Justice Department wanted to protect the broadcast industry against the monopoly power of these two companies, ASCAP and BMI. And so they put what's known as a consent decree on them, which basically says, we're going to let you keep doing business, but you're going to do it under our rules. And our rules are that you don't get to set the price of your intellectual property of your copyright, but rather we're going to give it to a federal judge that sits in New York to tell you what your price is and you can't say no. So when you're talking to a modern songwriter today, that songwriter is basically making money in three different ways. They're making money from that mechanical reproduction, mostly today interactive streaming. They're making money from public performance, which are things like still radio, general licensing to public venues, television. And they're making money from synchronizations of where their music is being married to some type of video. They put the song in a movie or a TV show or a music video or even YouTube. And a typical songwriter today, 75% of their revenue is regulated in one of those first two ways, the mechanical regulated by a World War I era law or the public performance regulated by a World War II era consent decree. And three-fourths of the revenue from a songwriter, the price is set by the federal government. And if you're a songwriter today and you're looking at why aren't you making more money from your songs, the answers tend to go back to those two reasons. What happened in 1909, what happened in 1941, and the fact that those two things still govern the songs that are produced today, which is one of the most incredible things that you've ever heard. I spoke to some Congress people, and when I talked to them about what we're talking about, I essentially said, you know, if you're a dairy farmer and you sold me a gallon of milk for 9.1 cents in 1972, that I in perpetuity can take your milk for 9.1 cents and you have no choice about it. And the problem with streaming is that because we don't know what it is, I can take your entire farm and I can give you a percentage of the 9.1 cents because I can argue that that milk is now is distributed differently. But I get to decide how much I pay you for your milk. 
I know that I'm probably screwing up this analogy in a few ways. No, it's a great analogy. But I was trying to explain in some sort of agricultural street, well, dirt road sort of way how little we're getting paid and how ridiculous that is. What was surprising were how surprised they were. Right. That they're still being educated and either they, either Congress hasn't, they aren't retaining the information or they're not being presented with the information. I'm not sure what it is. Why is it so hard to get people to recognize how ridiculous this is? We're dealing with a 109-year problem or 8-year problem and we're dealing with another problem on the other side that's approaching whatever that is, you know, 70 years. So why can't we get some sort of reform? It's a great question and it's it basically sums up what I consider to be my mission in life now is to figure out a way out of these restrictions. And I think we have two major problems. The first problem is what you pointed to, which is the lack of understanding by the people who make the decisions that govern us. And so in a United States Congress, you have committees, and there are committees in both the Senate and the House that are known as the Judiciary Committees, and they focus on issues involving copyright. If you talk to members of Congress in those committees, they generally have an understanding of what our issues are. They hold hearings, they have staffers who focus on these issues, and they generally are up to speed. But that represents a small fraction of the total Congress. And if you are a congressperson that's not on one of these two committees, you probably have very little reason to understand this. And what further complicates that problem is that members of Congress tend to focus on the problems of their own district. That's right, their own constituents. And so if you are a congressperson, what is important in your district? And for the music industry, we are a very concentrated industry in a couple of cities. And so if you go to talk to the members of Congress from Los Angeles or New York or Nashville, you will probably find members who are educated on our issues. If you talk to members of Congress from pretty much anywhere else in the country. They probably don't have a lot of songwriters in their district, and they're not hearing about these issues when they go to town halls, when they run for re-election, when they do candidate debates, things of that nature. And so it's an enormous challenge to try to educate members of Congress about these problems who aren't coming from a city that matters to the music industry or that sit on the right committee. And that's why... What you do and other songwriters do by donating your time to come to Washington and meet with members of Congress is probably the most valuable thing that we can ever do to advance our cause. Because having an actual songwriter explain this is so much more effective than even someone like myself who's uh, running a trade association to represent those songwriters. Because hearing it from the people who make the music is powerful. The second problem we have is that once you've educated people about what this problem is and their initial reaction is often, I didn't know that, that's surprising to me, that doesn't sound fair. Then you get into the politics. And the politics are that everyone who pays a songwriter doesn't want these rules to change. These rules benefit the people that pay songwriters. They get to pay songwriters less because of them. And there is what I call the unholy trinity of the industries that oppose change. 
One is made up of the giant technology companies. If you look at the technology companies today, four of the five biggest companies in the world use music significantly. Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook. Those companies enjoy the consent decrees and the compulsory licenses that keep our prices low. And they have enormous political power. Obviously, four of the five biggest companies in the world. The second group in that unholy trinity are the broadcasters, people that do broadcast radio, broadcast television. Every member of Congress has a broadcaster in their district. They are very effective in how they lobby. They are local, and members of Congress tend to listen to the broadcasters. They don't want the rules to change. The third group is made up of people that operate basically businesses that use music in a public space. So think about restaurants, bars, hotels. Again, every member of Congress has local business establishments that use music that do not want these rules to change. And so even if you can get beyond the hurdle of educating Congress about what our challenges are, and even if their initial reaction is that doesn't sound fair, when you get to the politics of changing it, we are facing an enormous power on the other side that is much more attuned to the local politics of the members that make these decisions. And then you combine that problem with the fact that the music industry is splintered often. They don't even speak with one voice. And so it's already, to your earlier introduction, a David versus Goliath fight. The problem with that we have is that the David in this situation is made up of lots of different little organizations that fight with each other. And so you end up not getting a message through where everyone agrees on what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. So that helps explain why we've been stuck with the rules that were given to us back in 1909 and 1941. But as depressing as that all sounds, that doesn't mean it has to stay that way forever. And I am optimistic that we're going to be able to change it. How? Well, there are a couple of ways. Um, first of all, I think that the interactive streaming models and the digital models that are now dominant in the music industry are putting a spotlight on the problem. It used to be that even though we had these same rules in place throughout history, we didn't really complain about them. If you think about the music industry, go because back... Because it was growing exponentially, so we... right. The music industry was growing. People were buying albums, which was the mechanical, or they were listening to the radio, which was performance, and money was good. Uh, we grew every year. Um, people generally thought they were getting a fair return when they were getting the 9.1 cents on every song of an album that was purchased by a consumer. And radio advertising generated a lot of money. And so for a long time, even though we lived under a compulsory license and a consent decree, we never complained about it. And I think that the complaining, and I say complaining, that's probably not even a good word, um, raising the issue of how unfair the rules are, started to really happen with the digital age. It started with Pandora. It started with YouTube. It started when people who were very successful at what they do, that were starting to realize that you can be successful and still not make a living. And that's when people started to pay attention. And so I am optimistic because of that. I'm also optimistic because I think that writers are becoming more educated. And as they do, there are a lot of decisions that can be made that can basically get around the political power 
of the people on the other side. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, very famous artist manager, Irving Azoff, looked at this situation and he decided that if ASCAP and BMI have to operate under this unfair consent decree, maybe I should start a new company that does what they do, but I won't be under that consent decree. And he started a PRO known as GMR, Global Music Rights. Um, that's just one example of a market reaction to what's going on in the world where you have all this regulation and price control. Doesn't that take away from the bargaining power of BMI and ASCAP and the majority of writers? What's important to understand is they don't have any bargaining power. ASCAP and BMI play under rules that are unfair to them. They do the best job that can be done in getting the best rates for their songwriters and publishers with the rules they have to play under. But understand how this works. If you are a... Uh, company that wants to use music and you go to ASCAP and BMI, the way that it works is that if you say to ASCAP and BMI, I want your license, you are now licensed. You can go forward, use their songs, and there is no problem. Think of another business where that would be true. I'd love to walk into a shop where I want to buy something and say, I want this shirt and I'm going to walk out with it and we'll later figure out what I'm going to pay you for it. Then what happens is that you're supposed to try to negotiate a price. But in that negotiation, there's no power by ASCAP or BMI to say no. So imagine a negotiation where one party is told that if you can't work this out, it's not that they don't get to use your property. It's that you go to a federal judge, spend millions of dollars on a trial process, and then years later are told what you're going to get paid. That's not a negotiation. That's not bargaining power. What was the the agreement that CSAC just recently went through? Because that I think that that could change the market. At least that's the the it, publicity. It's a great question. It. So there are four companies that are in the business of licensing performance rights for songwriters. ASCAP and BMI are the biggest two, and they're regulated. CSAC and GMR are two that are not regulated, and they're much smaller. CSAC was sued by two different groups. One group was made up of people that run radio stations. And one group was made up of people that run television stations. And in their lawsuits, they argued that what CSAC was doing, trying to negotiate a price in a free market, was somehow violating antitrust law. And those lawsuits got settled. And in the settlement, what CSAC agreed to do is go to an arbitration process to set their rates. Now, I think the reason why that happened is because as an industry, we are still figuring out how to do this properly. And so there are a couple of things that I am preaching about right now that I really want to get songwriters and music publishers and PROs to pay attention to. And I don't want to get too far off course of where you want to go, but let me just say it this way. Um, I think that we are focused on the wrong things. What's important is the value of our songs. That's what we should be fighting for. Unfortunately, we have been diverted into fighting over the process by which we license them. And my main theory is the value of our songs is more important than the process by which we license them. And I'll just give you one example of what I mean by that. There are databases of who owns what in the music industry. Everybody that runs a music organization has a database. If you're a major music publisher, you have a database of the writers that you represent in their songs. If you're a PRO, you have a database of what you represent in your PRO. Everyone has treated those databases as secret, as proprietary, 
as something to make money off of. And the result has been that people that want to get licenses in music have had a very hard time finding out who to get them from. Perfect example is the Spotify lawsuits that have been going on or what you've raised, these lawsuits against CSAC. I think as an industry, we have to shift our focus to recognize what's going on in the marketplace. This is no longer a marketplace of where we license a record label to put out an album or we license broadcast radio to play whatever they want on a broadcast radio signal. That's the old model. The new model involves a company that wants to open up a shop with 40 million songs. They don't know who owned them and they don't know how to get the licenses properly. I want that company to open up that shop. I want to fight with that company about how much they pay us. What I don't want to focus on is their maybe legitimate complaints that they can't get the licenses they need to pay us. And that's what the CSAC lawsuits were about. Explain what what that means. Sure. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, Amazon has recently opened up a digital music service that is a fully interactive competitor to Spotify and Apple. They are targeting a group of their customers that are somewhat different than the people that are already buying music subscriptions from Apple and Spotify. They came to see me before they launched that service and they were concerned. We want to open up a store with 40 million songs. How do we do it? By getting all the licenses that we need. We need a performance license. We need a mechanical license. And there's nowhere that tells us how to do that. And the truth is, you can't. There's no way to do what Amazon has done without exposing yourself to copyright infringement litigation. And no one is a bigger defender of copyright than myself, but I think we're focused on the wrong things. We want to make it easy for a company like Amazon to go out and sell $10 subscriptions to consumers. We want them to do that. And if we don't think we're getting enough of the $10, then let's fight about that. But what I don't think we should be fighting about is whether or not they should do it. Is how they can even get the rights in the first place. Where do you even go to get them? And that's part of the problem in the industry. We have licensing systems that were built for the old world and we're living in a new world where our systems don't work. And I know that's a long answer to your question, but it explains why CSAC had to settle their lawsuit. It explains why there are all these lawsuits going on right now against Spotify. And the principles are important in these lawsuits, but we're losing focus of what matters. Well, okay, so let's say that we're able to get the licenses across one way or the other. This revenue is primarily going to the master side right now because of the same laws, which I want to explain how labels are getting 90 cents on the dollar, maybe more than that. Right. You you bring up a really important point. These laws and regulations that I've described only apply to songwriters and music publishers. They do not apply to artists and record labels. When record labels came into existence in this country, the same rules were never put on them that we had been living with since 1909. And so if you fast forward to today, why is a record label making so much more money than a songwriter and music publisher for what the activity is? And I believe the answer lies in the laws that regulate us. And I'll give you the perfect example. I'll give you two examples. In every other country in the world, a record label's rights in radio are known as neighboring rights. 
people may have heard that term before. What it means is that if you're a radio station in another country and you have to pay the songwriters and you have to pay the artists, in every other country, the songwriter makes as much or more than the artist does for radio. The artist right is a neighboring right. In this country, even though we have the very unfair rule that artists don't get paid anything from radio, and that should change, if you look at digital radio, Pandora Radio, XM Sirius Radio, iHeart Radio, the record labels were getting 10 to 13 times what the songwriters were getting. And only after a very nasty long war have we improved that to be about five to one. And yet, why isn't it 50-50? And I think the answer is in the rules that regulate us versus the rules that either don't regulate artists and record labels at all or do so differently. So is it retaliation for the years of how radio like balanced out towards songwriters? Is this a label... You know, conspiracy. I've heard people get angry at the labels for how much money they're taking out of the models. And what I would say is, I don't blame them at all. They are in a free market and they run businesses for profit. And their job is to try to get as much money for their intellectual property as they can. They've been very successful at it. My problem is with the law that regulates us because I believe that if we were playing under the same rules as record labels, then the market would put a value on the two different contributions made by the writer and by the artist, and you would see it balance out. And the place where you do see that happen is in the synchronization field. And so whenever you put music in a movie or a TV show or a commercial, that is the one area of the music industry where both record labels and artists and songwriters and music publishers are free No government law that regulates it. No consent decree at the Justice Department that regulates it. And what happens in that environment? It's 50-50. 50-50. So let me, me, I just wanted to go through something because there's a lot here so far. And I just want to put some of this in a practical sense. I have a lot of experience with certain songs that have been licensed in a lot of places, but you know, the easiest one for me is My House just because everyone knows that song. Um, that song, when it would get licensed, we would get 50-50 on you know, television, film. Um, when it would get streamed and it has 500 million streams, that would create revenue of about $2 million to the record label. Of that, we would get 10% of that would go to the writers, the publishing of it. So of being one member of those writers... I'm I'm pulling in roughly sixty thousand sixty seven thousand dollars, and the labels bring in two million. So that's the disparity in right. in what the writer is getting versus the label. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong on some of that math. Now, as far as neighboring rights, another practical sense it, for those songs that I actually believe that there are five countries that don't subscribe to paying artists on radio. And those include uh, the U.S., Iran, North Korea, China, and Russia. Maybe Somalia or Yemen. Someone in the gra- <laughs> Grammys, Grammys on the Hill is going to text me after this and clarify this. But that's the company that we're keeping as far as people who don't pay artists for radio. So there's obviously a problem there too. And that's different than being a songwriter because not all songwriters are singing on 
songs and whatnot. Right. Um, but I just want to give like some practical sense, like of how a songwriter actually gets paid from. I get a song. Pl- a, ra- a record label releases a song, and the revenue streams now. It's so hard to explain how a songwriter gets paid. How do you make a living at it? And part of why, when I speak to record labels, why I say, I don't want to give you, I'm not going to give you this song. I will not give you this song anymore unless it's a single. Because I can't think of a way that an album track creates any revenue for me. You get 500, if you get, uh, sorry, instead of 500, uh, Million, you get five hundred thousand. Maybe I said five hundred thousand for my house. That was five hundred million. If you get five hundred thousand streams, then you're talking about you know two hundred thousand dollars, and you're starting to split six thousand dollars for for the songwriters. And most songs are getting you know a hundred. You know, if you have an album track, you're you're maybe getting fifty thousand streams, kind of things for for hit albums. So when you get that kind of revenue, you're talking about essentially, you know, if you get 50,000 streams, I'm getting $67. And one of my favorite things was I was having dinner with the president of a record label and and I gave them a song that was the single for one of their artists. Song didn't really react. They didn't really go to radio. The album sold 20,000 copies. We're sitting there at dinner and I said, my mechanical of half of a song, that means I'm a 50-50 writer. And most songs right now, you're one quarter of that. As a 50-50 writer, I said, I made $91. That's my mechanical on selling 20,000 copies. Did that cover your dinner tab that night? That's what I said. (laughs) I cannot afford this dinner with the song that you used on your major label artist. So unless labels compensate the songwriter in another way, in a unique way, giving up some of the equity on the master side, giving points, doing other things like that, I don't know how we don't how we continue on as a culture of writing and how we develop songwriters if there's no revenue model for potential album tracks and whatnot. And this is what we're, we're struggling with. Without, while you're figuring out legislation, on the ground, how can songwriters make a living? You raise a couple of really interesting points. Um, first, um, a lot of writers may not know what this is called, but there is a right that a songwriter has that's known as a first-use right. And so, as I've described, 75% of a songwriter's world they have no choices. They have no rights. They have no freedom. But the place where they do have freedom is when you write a song, you get to decide who records it and releases it for the first time only. Once you've done that, then everything else, you lose your power. And so what you're raising is a, is a really interesting idea that writers might want to try to think differently about their first use rights and giving them away. Because once you've agreed to it, then not only does that compulsory license kick in, that consent decree kick in, but anyone can re-record your song without your permission. That's why you often hear about people doing cover songs without the permission of the person who wrote them. It's because they don't need their permission once you've given that first use license. And so... That's a tactic that probably is only available to the most successful writers like yourself. But I think it's a really interesting idea that should be considered. One of of the issues that we've had with that, and we've talked about this, um, the idea of trying to develop a first-use license, whether it was a line item in in a budget for a record label. Could they go and look at... 
um, you know, the first use licenses as they would, you know, paying after an AFM and other music unions and singers unions. But the problem is then you'd have to unionize as writers in order to do that, or we'd have to figure out an industry standard for first use, regardless of how big of a writer you are. Right. And that's the, and, and then who would collect it? And then we'd have to find a way to do that. And the problem that I have as being primarily a writer and not a producer is that a lot of producers put in their contract that that the label has this first right. The producer also does not have the right to do that, but they're getting compensated for that in almost every contract. Right. And so some of it is like when somebody's got to kick back some of this, the label's willing to pay the publisher for the, or sorry, the label's willing to pay the producer for the right to use that song, but not the other writers. And that gets complicated because what would that, what, what percentage of the production is that? I don't know how we set that standard, but it would be nice if there was something. I think like it's that. a really interesting idea. And the other thing that you mentioned that to me is so fascinating is that you talk about, the amount of money that that particular song generated for you as the writer. People need to understand that most songwriters will go their entire career without ever coming close to having one song that is that big of a hit. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Writers may spend their entire lives hoping that one time they get a song with the commercial success of a My House. And so when you talk about the numbers that are involved, I'm sure there are a lot of writers out there that think 67000 sounds like a lot of money. But when you put it in perspective of that is what you make when you have reached the pinnacle of a craft, when you are as successful as you can be in your craft, it puts in perspective just how low that number is. That's right. And um, it's, I think, you know, it sounds like I've been critical of record labels. I want to be clear. Record labels have their own challenges here. But what they've been able to do is figure out how to be successful in this new world because of their freedom to negotiate the terms of their deals. So, you know, Spotify is a great example. Spotify is a company that really doesn't do anything other than take the things that you create and deliver them to a consumer. They provide an important role. They develop technology. They market that role. But they do, they're a delivery service is what they are. And they they don't make anything themselves. They're and a jukebox. They're like a jukebox. 
And that company now is valued to be worth $16 billion, more than the entire music industry combined. Now, the record labels, because they were in a free market, were able to negotiate that they get part ownership of that company for licensing them. And when Spotify goes public, some record labels will probably make a lot of money because they were able to negotiate that. And I think it was great that they did. But songwriters don't have that option because when they license Spotify, they're not sitting across a table in a free market able to put in terms that they want or say no. And as a result, you end up with a rate structure that is entirely unfair to the people who create the music that makes their business possible. And if you look at other delivery services, if you look at a typical, it, let's not just pick on Spotify, take any of the interactive streaming services today, is a general rule of thumb, the record labels are making somewhere in the neighborhood of 55 to 60% of the revenue that's being generated. The songwriters and the music publishers are making somewhere in the neighborhood of 10% of the revenue being generated, and the remainder is staying with the company. And you raise a very important point, that on the songwriting side, it is often split among many people because the craft of songwriting is usually a collaborative one. So the 10% that the publishers and songwriters get is being divided among many people, whereas the record label and the artists tend to be sole owners and they're getting up to 60%. And I'm not knocking what the record label's role is in this ecosystem. I'm suggesting that the way that the money is split was not set by natural market forces. And if that were to happen, I think we would probably be very pleased with how much we get paid from these services too. How much would the record labels resent us if they lost 50% of their revenue to split it with? So... What everybody wants to say is that it doesn't have to come out of a record label pocket. We can grow the pie. It's one of my favorite terms you'll hear, is that we should be able to grow the pie. And I think there's some truth to that. We should be able to grow the pie. And maybe some of it should come out of the digital companies. I mean, if you look at what Apple and Amazon and Google are doing, they have tremendous value to their companies from the use of music beyond what they're charging for it. Apple selling phones. Amazon selling Prime memberships and Echo devices. Google selling everything. So even if their music service is a break-even proposition, they're getting tremendous value from the fact they have a music service. So I do think there's room within the digital company's take to be shared with songwriters. My answer when people ask about, well, then, where's the money going to come from? Who's going to lose in that circumstance? My answer is, it, it doesn't matter what I think. My view about the value of songs versus the value of a recording versus the value of a tech company that delivers it is irrelevant. That's what markets are for. Markets tend to price things what their actual worth is. And so if you would just put us under the same rules as record labels, I'll accept whatever that produces because I think it will level out the true value of what's being done here. Is there a scenario where you think songwriters would be devalued even more by having it unregulated? Sure, it's possible. Okay. I'm not worried about that because I think the value of the songs is so much greater than 10% of the revenue being created. Right. But it's possible. That's you accept I mean, it that. seems so clear when you're essentially not only just writing it from scratch, but then you're singing on albums and you're, you're so involved. One of the issues that we had with getting songwriters added to Album of the Year for the Grammys, which is probably the most important thing I've done in the last two years, was 
we argued that you don't understand what a songwriter does. That you are giving us a job description that that doesn't exist anymore. There isn't somebody who's writing, um, who's notating the music and then giving this sheet music for two cents. That doesn't happen. Now I'm in the room probably doing all the vocal arranging, probably doing all of the, you know, a lot of the basis for the production without stepping on what producers do because there's no doubt that none of my songs work if I don't have my producing, my my great producing partners and, and writers attached to it. I'm not claiming that I'm doing all the work. I'm just saying that I'm doing more than than just writing out a lyric to a, uh, uh, to sheet music and then handing that over. And that's been one of the issues is that I don't think people recognize what an actual songwriter does anymore. Right. And I don't know how you, we don't we often don't get vocal producing credit <laughs> and we don't get a lot of the things that we end up doing. Right. So And and I want to pause on that because I think it's important people understand what you and a very few number of people did. I I received a call from from Neil Portnow who runs the Grammys to tell me they were going to be making this change. And I was so happy to hear that now the songwriters are going to be recognized on such an important award. And, and I want to thank you, because I know you were a leader of doing this. And, Evan Bogart, too. And was, Evan was and, um, and the others that were involved mm-hmm. in making that happen. And I thanked Neil at the time, too. It's an important step. I'll give you another example. Um, the, the record labels for now, I guess, close to 60 years have had a program to recognize artists that reach certain statures of sales. And their gold and platinum program has become a worldwide recognized symbol of success. In fact, I'm sitting in your studio looking at gold and platinum award plaques. About 10 years ago, I came up with the idea that why are songwriters not being recognized for writing the song that went gold or platinum? And there are three different programs that the record labels run. One for albums, one for singles, and one now for ringtones that really doesn't matter. And I went to the record labels and I asked if we could set up a partnership program so that on a single, whenever an artist is certified as gold or platinum for that single, now, three weeks later, I get to certify the songwriter as also being a gold or platinum songwriter on that song. And it's something that we do in partnership with the record labels. And, um, you know, we're still educating people that this is a thing um, because people for so long only, uh, you know, thought of the Gold and Platinum Award as an artist type of award. But now any songwriter that writes a Gold or Platinum single is a Gold and Platinum songwriter and gets their own award. And I've given out a bunch of them. And when I give them out to writers who aren't the artists, you can tell how much they appreciate the recognition as the writer. And what was interesting to me is when I give them out to the artists who also happened to be the writers or a co-writer, every single artist I have ever given one to has commented to me that this one meant more to them. And so I'm looking at a plaque now for Thomas Rhett who received one both as an artist and a writer. Uh, The same thing happened with Steven Tyler or Lady Annabellum or Amy Lee from Evan Essence or Marin Morris or Kelsey Ballerini. These are artists who appreciate that they're being recognized not just as the recording artist on that gold or platinum, but as the songwriter too. And so, um, 
it's it's the same type of, of thing that I think we need to do more and more of recognizing the contribution of the writers. And my last point on this is that it's time for the streaming companies to start recognizing the writers in what they show the consumer in terms of what's put up on the screens. Well, I mean, so there are a few things to this. One is that it's shocking that we have to all buy, producers too have to buy platinum and gold records that are creating that revenue from the record label. I think that that's like one of those reach outs that would be really nice to the creators when clearly if if uh, Spotify goes you know, public, there's going to be more than enough money to go around. Things like, you know, trophies are nice. And which brings up something like, you know, Secret Genius for Spotify. I know that they're going through effort to try to put a spotlight on songwriters. And Apple's also going through Songbook and some of these other things. And they've been very proactive. How do you feel like that's changing the dialogue? I'm glad you asked me about that because I, I actually am very torn about how to feel and I, I would be interested in, in how you feel about it. Um, I've talked with, with Spotify about their Secret Genius program. I was just in Nashville, and I look up and I see a giant billboard of my friend Shane McAnally and his big mug on a billboard as the Secret Genius from Spotify. Um, I'm of mixed emotion because, on one hand, I'm very glad that these digital companies are starting to pay more attention to the role of songwriters in their business success. And so recognizing the contribution of songwriters you can never do enough of. And so I love the idea that they're doing that. On the other hand, I think a lot of the efforts have been cosmetic and not substantive. And I think if they really wanted to respect songwriters, probably they should start with how they pay them. And so I'm torn about the Secret Genius program because while I welcome Spotify putting a spotlight on the writers that create this. And I've talked with them about other things they're, they're going to be doing to recognize writers because I do think they understand they have a problem with their relationships with writers. This is a company that goes to the rate trial and argues that they should cut the rates that exist today, not just be against the increases that I proposed, but they want to cut the current rates. They go to the Justice Department and they argue that these consent decrees should never be lifted and that they should even be more onerous on the songwriters. They go to Congress and they lobby for laws that would not be helpful to songwriters. And I just wonder how many songwriters see a secret genius program and think, that's a friend. And in some ways, they are a friend. They're business partners. But I think writers need to be educated about it's a friend that they may have some conflict with. And this is always was always true with record labels too, when you think about it. Um, when record labels were the ones that paid the songwriters, we would fight with record labels over how much money they should pay for the, the songwriter. Now we're just doing the same thing with digital companies. And so I guess <laughs> I come to you with, with very mixed emotions. I'm interested to the writers who are educated about the business side, how they're reacting to this. When you understand what the company's doing to try to keep you from earning more, but yet looking at the things they're doing to put a spotlight on your contribution, how do, how do you feel about it? Oh, man. I'm a, I'll have a... This is my candid thought. And I'll see, I'll see how, I can, how I can say this um, as eloquently as I can. Um, Secret Geniuses and Songbook, they've both been fair to me. Um, I think it's hard to accept... 
dinners, food, award shows, when in reality it feels like I had over a billion streams last year and I'm getting paid from my share roughly what a starting employee at your company gets paid. It's hard to sit there and be thankful and it feels weird when you're cutting into that steak to be like, <laughs> I, I, know, I know who bought this steak. And it's not just me. I know that the awards, they're having the Secret Genius Awards, the first annual Secret Genius Awards. And I'm nominated and I appreciate the nomination. Um, I know that there is a, 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 a similar feeling amongst other writers that this is, this is probably not the way to um, like boycott or <coughs> not show up to some event like this. But there, it, I'd be lying to say there isn't some mixed emotions with the idea that this event surely will cost half a million dollars and will be something that at best gives a trophy and celebrates the songwriting community. <laughs> and I appreciate what Troy and what... Tiffany and the staff are doing there and representing, uh, trying to shine a light because they don't have to do that. And I recognize that they don't have to do that. And we do appreciate this the limelight a little bit. Um, it it is it is a hard pill to swallow to be to to show up with a, a happy face. That said, again, I, I'm in the same boat as. I imagine every other nominee is that this this may, and I, again, I think that there are some issues that we're not talking about that has nothing to do with these awards. I think what what's happening is these companies are getting huge. You have Spotify, Apple, iHeart are massive corporations. Even the twenty percent of the streaming serve, you know, world that is Apple streaming, that is a huge company. You know, it's like going and saying uh, Mercedes is probably twenty percent of the automobile industry. Do you know what I mean? I, it's yeah. so the idea of looking at Apple as smaller or look is is the wrong way to look at it. And I think one way is that these these companies not only are they trying to figure out a way to reach out to songwriters? But they're, um, I, I worry a little bit because there's a battle going within them as to who breaks artists, how do you break artists, who's going to have the lion's share within their own community. They're right. having their own battle right now. Right. So it's like it's like watching Beta and and VHS fight for the home movie market. And we're, you know, we're the screenwriters watching this happen. So, right. I mean, on some level, there are so many issues in this era of music that, I mean, it's, you asked a short question, but I don't know how to feel about any of it other than like, I, I still need to figure out a way to feed my family. Right. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I'll tell you, I, I actually drafted a letter to all of the secret genius recipients and honorees. And I haven't sent it. And the letter tried to strike the right tone by saying, congratulations. I think it's wonderful you're being recognized and honored. Um, But it's important to know 
what the issues are that I think we have between us and the industry. And so be aware, this is their position on your rates. This is their position on these laws. This is their position on issues that affect your pocketbook. And my goal in writing that letter was not to suggest you not go, not accept their praise. I think you have to. I think we should. It's to use the position you've been given to, to then engage them on the more substantive things. And so I guess the way I've come down on it is I want to thank them, accept the, the effort, praise them, but not be ignorant to that somehow that's buying off cheaply what our real concerns are. And I know that's a delicate balance, but I think there's, again, more and more writers are being educated in part because of these wonderful things like your podcast and other you know, writers who have engaged in this, that I think we can address this maturely with these companies and then see whether or not they can respond beyond the surface cosmetic type things that they're doing, because that would make a real difference if they were to take a substantive step to improve relationships. And I'll give you an example of where I think that worked. Um, when Pandora was going through its phase of basically trying to screw the songwriters using every possible tool in their disposal. Because their attitude at the time was that we don't need their permission to do anything, and so let's just extract what they create at the lowest possible price, and we just don't give a damn what the relationship is. They went through a phase like that. And I think it backfired on them, and I think they became a pariah in the music industry, and I think that they couldn't go to a music event without the fear of having trash thrown at them. And the company changed its culture. And I'll never forget, they, they, this is not to get into the weeds too much, but they, you know, they went through lawsuits with ASCAP and BMI over how much they were going to pay them. And they basically won those lawsuits. They were told by the court how little they had to pay. But because of the public relations pressure and because the culture of the company started to focus on we may need these relationships for other things we want to do, like spread to other countries, like offer interactive services, etc. They came back and they voluntarily doubled the rates they were paying. Now, it's still not enough. It was that five to one ratio I mentioned yeah. earlier from 10 to one. But the fact that the company was willing to put money up to try to improve their relationships is at least gives me some hope that if these companies really start to worry about their relationship with the creative community and, and this is the important part, the creative community is educated about what's going on, that maybe we could start to see some movement on issues that have a financial impact, not just, it's, it's, it's great to be honored, it's great to put up billboards, it's great to give data from your service that can help people choose where to go have concerts. Um, all that stuff is great, it's valuable, but it's not as important as being paid fairly. Tell me about what NMPA is. Okay. NMPA is a trade association. And what that basically means, it's an organization that represents an entire industry. And obviously, it's the industry of music publishing. But I've always believed my mandate is to also represent the songwriters because all a music publisher is is someone who has partners who are songwriters. And so our mandate is to protect and defend the rights of music publishers and songwriters. And that takes many different forms. It takes the form of lobbying the government. So we are the lobbyists for the industry to the Congress, to administration agencies, things of that nature. We are in many ways the law firm to the industry. We bring a lot of lawsuits to protect the rights 
of masses of writers and publishers. And we've been very effective at doing that. Sometimes those lawsuits are designed to shut people down. Sometimes those lawsuits are designed to get people to pay penalties and then become legitimate business partners. But in our 13 years, we've never lost a lawsuit. We've spent probably close to $40 million bringing them, but we've collected over half a billion dollars from the people that we've sued and put that money back into the industry. So our legal program is a big part of what we do. Um, we also are a public relations tool for the industry. The Golden Platinum is just one little part of that, but it's a place for people to get educated about issues, to bring writers to Washington and speak out. So we have a lot of different functions. And then we represent the industry in these rate-setting proceedings that we wish we didn't have to go through, but we do. And so someone has to be the party that represents the industry to set the rates. And so all those things fit under the umbrella of what NMPA does. Who's on the board so we have an 18-member board. You have to be the head of your company to be on the board, so CEOs only. It includes all the larger music publishers, so it includes Sony and Universal, and Warner Chapel, BMG, Cobalt, and that includes really most of the, the key independent community. We have companies on our board such as Songs and Reservoir and Downtown Music and Pier and Carlin and Round Hill and Bicycle, Concord, um, uh, Abco, and then we have some folks that are elected to our board that make up kind of the, the much smaller kind of music publishing you know, company that represent that part of the industry as well. Why are there no songwriters on that board? It's a great question. Um, there are no songwriters on the board now because right now the mandate is to be the trade association for the publishing industry, whereas you have other songwriter organizations like the Nashville Songwriters Association or SONA here in Los Angeles. And in those organizations... They have all songwriter boards and no publishers on their boards. And so I'd like to see us get to a place where the songwriter organizations and the publishing organizations figure out a way to come together. And I mentioned earlier, one of our biggest problems is we don't speak with one voice. It seems to me that one of the ways to do that is to figure out how to get together and actually be one organization. Um, you look at the PROs, it's a similar thing. ASCAP is made up of a board comprised of both publishers and writers. But then BMI and CSAC and GMR don't have board members that are either publishers or writers. And so, um, you know, I do think that songwriters should be represented. And um, it's just figuring out the right way to do it, quite honestly, um, is how I would like to do it. Normally, I go through five people that, to hear what, what you have. It's just first thing that comes off the top of your head. All right? All right. Publishers. Misunderstood in many ways important partners to songwriters. And um, I think that underappreciated in terms of the role they play in terms of the success of many songwriters' careers. Songwriters. Songwriters. Uh, the first thing that I think of are emotions that they create for me. These are people that create music that, that, that make me happy, that can make me sad, that make me nostalgic. Um, that I watch my, my two young daughters listen to music and not in their reaction. I think they're geniuses. Um, and they shouldn't be secret geniuses. They're geniuses who do something that I think most people wish they could do, but can't. And I think that they're probably the most underappreciated segment of the entire creative community, not just music, in terms of what they do. Because they're so, they're so often not associated with the success that is only possible by them. Um, it bothers me 
when I see so much attention given to artists and not the proper credit given to their songwriting partners? Republicans. <laughs> well, that's a tougher one today. Um, Republicans, I grew up being a Republican. I was uh, the head of the college Republicans when I went to college. I worked for, for many Republicans in Congress and, and the Attorney General who was a Republican. I helped elect Republicans as part of my career. Um, but I think that I would say Republicans are no longer one party. I think you have a lot of different interests that are collected under what people will call Republicans. And um, it's part of the problem in the Democratic Party too. I think whenever you have only two parties, it's hard to cram everybody into just two models of what that means. But to me, what, what made me a Republican, which is probably what's important, is um, not so much the social issues. I wouldn't say that I'm a conservative on social issues, but I think on some economic issues, I tend to be more conservative about what I think works. And that's probably what drives a lot of my views about the songwriting industry and why I think a free market would be better for songwriters is because of my belief in small businesses and free enterprise um, and the right to, if you create property, you have ownership of that property. And I believe in property rights. And so some of that to me fits under what it means to me to be a Republican. One of the hardest things to explain to songwriters is that Republicans historically have actually been the ones that have been on our side. And I think what happens is you have songwriters and artists who have cloud their views on their parties because most of us are liberal, you know, bleeding <laughs> liberals. Like it's it's just what it's it's what we do as a culture. I mean, I know in Nashville it's different, but. Um, Generally speaking, the people out here who are artists are the most liberal of people, and they don't recognize that in reality, liberals tend to be supportive of tech companies and they put them in charge of the Library of Congress and they don't vote on behalf of songwriters and creators because they don't they're not looking at us as small businesses, and that this may actually be an era where we could get some legislation through because Republicans tend to view it as, well, if we change these laws, we could bring in so much more revenue into the country. Right. You know, If we start add or adding neighboring rights into this country, we'd be adding millions and millions and tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars annually into the music business, which is all taxable income. It's a struggle so, that I have. I, I run a trade association for an industry that is mostly liberal, but yet Congress and the White House are controlled by Republicans. And my job is to try to make progress for my constituents with those people. And, you know, I think that our issues don't tend to be partisan issues. I mean, we have a lot of great champions in Congress that are both Democrats and Republicans. Um, the man in Congress who's probably doing the most for us is Doug Collins. He's a preacher out of Georgia and a conservative guy. But yet, he really cares about songwriters. And when I put him together with maybe some more liberal artists, it's funny to watch that relationship yeah. develop because they're getting to know each other as people and not as taglines, and I think that's important. Absolutely. Um, Democrats? Um, Democrats, it's a great question. I'm not sure, you know, when you're in the minority um, parties and you don't have a leader of the party, oftentimes there's not an identity with your party. And so I don't know that um, I think of Democrats as, in one way. I think that there are a lot of Democrats that are helpful to our issues. I think they tend to relate to more of the creative industries in many ways and, and, and friendlier, especially with a lot of the artist community. But I'm concerned um, 
in some ways about their relationship with the tech community. And I will tell you this, regardless of whether you thought President Obama was a good or bad president, I would challenge you if you are a songwriter to say that he was anything other than incredibly bad for the songwriting industry. The, the Obama administration, and that goes down through his Justice Department, um, mostly, and his relationship with allowing Google and other tech companies to infiltrate every aspect of the government was horrible during those years. And so um, that's something that I think that a lot of liberal songwriters and artists have to come to grips with is that their politics may align, but it doesn't mean it's good for their businesses. Well, and that's that's been something that we... we we're trying to educate other writers and artists on is that it's not, you don't have to vote your wallet. You can vote whatever you want. And I imagine most writers in Los Angeles have trouble voting for conservative. Well, there often aren't any running in Los Angeles. That's that's true. (laughs) But but the idea is that it's important to recognize that the people who are, are helping you out are the people who you think you hate. And that it's not, that's a very short sighted way to look at, at this. For us, we need songwriters and artists to recognize that Republicans have actually had our backs. And that really should em- add some empathy towards what tends to be a visceral response. Sure. Towards what seems to be a very, uh, you know, especially right now, a, a, a very heated. Point of view. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I would say that you know anyone who wants to be the friend of the songwriter is our friend, and we shouldn't we shouldn't push anyone away because right. we disagree on other parts of their political agenda necessarily. And I do think the relationship between the tech industry and the Democratic Party they have relations with the Republicans too. Don't get me wrong, but I do think that that's been an issue. It was in the Library of Congress. It was in the Copyright Office. It was in the Justice yeah. Department. You know, now that's changing, and I start. I think it, I think the relationship is changing in general. If you look at the the kind of the anger at many of the larger tech companies over their role in the election, a lot of Democrats are starting to rethink those relationships anyway. All right, last the RIAA. RIAA. I would say that the RIAA, first of all, is run by some really great people: Carrie Sherman, who's their head, and Mitch Glazier, who is incoming as the new head after next year, are are really good friends of mine. I respect them. I think they're intelligent. I think they do a lot of good things. I think we have more in common with record labels today, actually, than we ever have. Um, I think while we still have issues that we fight about, that we're actually closer aligned than we ever have been before. And so the way I approach my relationship with the RAA is I hope maturely in that, first of all, we are friends. Secondly, where we agree on issues, we're going to be partners. And thirdly, we're going to be mature enough that when we disagree, we're going to fight honestly. And that's how we've tried to approach it. And uh, I think that you know we probably should be looking to do more things together rather than fewer things together. We do have to get the, the issue right about how money is divided, and that's never going to be an easy thing to do. But what's interesting about record labels is they're becoming more like publishers. Um, it used to be that record labels were the ones that made the product and interacted with the consumer. And now record labels are no different than we are in that they license the copyright that they create to a third party. And that third party is now playing the role of providing to the consumer what they want and collecting the money, et cetera. And so you're starting to see record labels start to understand our issues better than they probably did when they were in the other position. And that's been interesting to watch. What's a song you wish you wrote? <laughs> Pretty much any one of the ones you've written would be one that oh, I wish that I wrote. Um, I, look, I love, 
I love music, and so I'll, you know, maybe I, I've always thought my favorite song was either More Than a Feeling by Boston. Nice. Um, I've always loved Let It Be by the Beatles. Yeah. And, um, and I've always loved the song Hallelujah, which I was oh, so fortunate good. enough as a board member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame to be part of inducting that great songwriter into the Hall of Fame. So, but the, the truth is, <laughs> I wish I had written any song that people wanted to listen to. Um, what's... What's advice you'd give to a young songwriter? I get asked that a lot. Um, advice I would give to a young songwriter. I would say to a young songwriter, first of all, don't be discouraged by what you hear are the troubles of the music industry because if you want to be a songwriter, then go be a songwriter. That's the first thing I would tell them. Secondly, I would tell them that more than ever, they need to be educated about the business side of what they're doing. Um, it's more important now to understand the business issues than it was before. And so you can't just be a creator anymore. You have to, in effect, be a small business yourself. And that means paying attention to all these other things. Third, I would say choose carefully who you do business with, your publisher, your PRO, the artists that you work with, the producers you work with, and get involved in what they're doing as well. Um, those would be the things that I would you know, probably say to a, to a young songwriter from my point of view. I can't give them a lot of creative advice, but that's what I would say in terms of them as being successful in their business. I was on the board for the Grammys last year, and, and one of the things that we had discussed was that someone should essentially start a coalition that does combine. I know we have differing views with uh, RAAA and on some things, and I understand that, but there needs to be some sort of uh, like some sort of catchphrase of sort of like we all wear the same jersey, right? Because when it comes down to it, it is the music industry, and none of it works without songs. But the recording of the song does matter, and we all need each other. And there needs to be some of the people who are in the creative on the ground need to have a voice. I and I can't appreciate what you do enough because you have become the voice of our entire community of songwriters. And as you continue to grow the NMPA and as we can start combining, you know, some of these organizations, I think it's important to make sure that the voices also include some of the people who aren't getting, who aren't trying to create revenue for giant conglomerates. I get that the board for NMPA has all the major publishers, but in reality, some of those major publishers are publicly traded, are part of publicly traded companies, and where that money comes from on that line sheet somewhere in Tokyo or somewhere in Russia or wherever it is may not matter to like fighting to make sure that songwriters get paid. And there's probably some... There's some issues uh, as to um, what's really ethical in some of that. Obviously, I appreciate my publisher because they've been great for me, but I just think it's important that people who aren't affiliated with bigger companies, and that's where the smaller publishers work, where maybe some songwriters could have more of a voice, I think it's essential in growing right. the next conversation. One of the things I love about NMBA is that if you take the giant companies um, that make up four or five seats of the board. We have an 18-member board where they all have equal votes. 
And so even though the five largest companies may control 80% of the industry, they only have five of 18 votes and we operate only by consensus generally. And so most trade associations don't have the big and small players under one roof. The RAA is a perfect example. The RAA represents the major record labels. There's a different trade association known as A2IM that represents the independent record labels. And NMPA, we've been able to figure out how to do it under one roof, and I think that makes us stronger. To your point about all the creators coming together, uh, one music, I think there are areas where that works and there are areas where it doesn't. The areas where it works... We have a common interest in protecting the value of copyright. There are attacks on copyright by you know giant companies that want to devalue the idea of copyright. And so issues about fair use or orphan works or about statutory damages or the length of copyright. We should be one industry fighting together. Where it doesn't work is where, quite honestly, you have to recognize that the issues that a record label faces are different than a songwriter and music publisher because we're regulated differently. Right. And so you've got to be aware that it's not so simple as to run to Congress and say we're one industry because the truth is the we're issues not. that <laughs> we're not. Yeah. The issues that labels care about are not the same issues that writers and publishers care about. It doesn't mean we can't support each other, but it means that it's very hard to do it as one entity. And I'll tell you why I'm worried about that. If you had just one entity that lobbied for the music industry, because the recorded music side of the industry is bigger than the songwriting side, I worry that a disproportionate amount of the time and attention would be on those issues that only affect record labels and not songwriters and publishers. And so I agree with you, but I think you also have to understand the things we're fighting for in Congress, they're very different than what record labels are fighting for. It doesn't make their issues any less valuable or important. It's just they're different. Right, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you doing this. I I think educating our listeners and the music industry and me, you know, individually, I, again, I can't appreciate your time enough. I, I think this is, a, this is a turning point in the music business. And if we all turn together, um, we got a better shot. So uh, we appreciate you being on. Thank you. I, I hope your listeners appreciate just how much you do um, for the industry. Uh, you are an extremely successful writer, but yet you find a way to donate your time and attention and energies into these advocacy issues. And if more songwriters gave back like you do to the industry, we'd be in a better place. And and let me finally say, it's just such an honor to be interviewed by you. Um, this has been a show that is mostly, as it should, focus on amazing songwriters being interviewed by an amazing songwriter and the fact that I would be included in the programming among those other great writers and interviewed by you is a real honor for me so thank you thank you thanks for listening to this episode of and the writer is if you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. We have a very special week next week as And The Writer Is celebrates the 51st annual CMA Awards, which air Wednesday, November 8th on ABC. We'll feature five of the biggest country hitmakers releasing a new episode every day next week as we honor country music and the CMA Awards.
On next week's episode, we sit down with Thomas Rhett. Singing what was on the radio. I, I mean, I, you know, be, having a dad that was a country music singer and just a music lover, um, I feel like from the age of like four, I was loved to sing songs that were on the radio. My dad did a great job at like really playing me and my sister a wide variety of music. So obviously country music was my first love because that's what dad did for a living. But on the way to school every morning, like dad would play something different to us every day. Like one day it'd be freaking DMX and the next day it would be like Paul McCartney's solo records and then it would be Aretha Franklin and then like Ricky Skaggs. And so my sister and I, as much as we probably hated it at the time being four years old because all we cared about was Will Smith and Justin Timberlake, um, as you get older, you start to really appreciate the fact that your dad ingrained amazing music into your head. And I think, I think that's what makes me such a versatile writer is because I grew up loving so many different kinds of music. So um, I didn't start playing guitar until I was like 15 or 16 in high school and really started playing guitar for the reason everyone else plays guitars, just to impress women. So. Yeah. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 